www.ncpp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. And as always, we welcome your questions. You may be a first time listener to our station. And if so, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. People email them at TBL. That stands for the Bible line TBL at WAGP.net. You're free to email them or you can call us locally. It's 843 843- Five two five eighteen fifty nine, and you can either dictate your question or possibly go on the air live. Deb will be happy to screen your call this morning. In either case, we're so glad to be here. This is a great week at Community Bible Church. We're very excited about some of the things that are happening. Over 160 missionaries from around the world are going to be with us and from a number of countries of the world. And so tomorrow night at our Wednesday evening service, uh, to the play of bagpipes, they will come in at a parade, and then the African Children's Choir is going to be with us, and we haven't had them in a long, long time. Last time we had them, it was absolutely packed out. They are outstanding beyond, you can imagine, these orphan children who have been brought off the streets and being cared for, led to Christ, and they sing and share their testimonies, so that is tomorrow evening at Community Bible Church. Uh, which is uh, in April here. This is a live broadcast today. Sometimes these things are rebroadcast, but it's tomorrow. And then later on in the week, uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer will be with us on Friday night. Uh, Many of you listen to him a couple times a day. He is uh, broadcast across America, the pastor now emeritus of uh, Moody Church, served there as the pastor for many years, now just traveling and speaking and he'll be with us Friday evening at 6.30 and then in both worship services on Sunday morning at 9.15 and 11. If you go to communitybiblechurch.us, you'll see all the details for the missions conference. So a lot of things going on this week. Men's breakfasts, prayer breakfasts, uh, women's prayer breakfasts, um, special interaction with the missionaries. So a lot of neat things. Anyway, let's go ahead and we'll jump in with both feet. And by God's grace, we'll try to respond to some of these questions, Rick. All right, Pastor, we've got uh, Mackenzie who has emailed her question. She lives in uh, Warrington, Virginia. She says, our 20-year-old son came home from college and revealed that he was a homosexual. That was on July 27th of last year. Uh, she He revealed that to um, her husband while she was away. My husband responded harshly that it was the most ignorant decision he had ever heard. He told him that he was disgusted with him and in no way could he live that type of lifestyle in our home ever. My husband went outside to cut the lawn because he was too afraid to be near our son. My husband said he felt pure rage at him and was afraid that he would physically harm him. During this revealing conversation, I was away on errands. When I returned home, my son was inside packing to leave. Um, he 
call the friend, and when I walked in the door, he fled our home in tears, saying he needed to love us from afar. Recently, he texted uh, my husband and asked for his birth certificate, passport, and Social Security card that he had left here. He asked my husband to give it to someone that we don't know at all. My husband offered him an Uber to come fetch the documents himself. He has never come over, and recently a lawyer wrote asking for the documents for him. I've emailed him several times prior. I don't know where he resides. He's completely immersed himself with his new friends, unfriended his sister and all his church group buddies. He is attending a church in Fairfax that is all gay. We are at a loss. We don't condone his behavior, and we'll not talk to our pastor. He will not talk to our pastor, only his pastor, who is, of course, a homosexual, as is everyone at the church. Any advice on how to connect with him? Well, I'm so sorry. This is such a heartbreak for this family uh, to share this news, to find out this news concerning their son. Uh, It's not an easy situation uh, to address. And unfortunately, your husband's initial response, I'll just I'll just be honest. If he was in front of me, I would have said to him, look, you're. Initial anger was understandable, but to be in a rage towards your son and for him to feel utter rejection only really advances the problem and uh, creates not a welcoming atmosphere to be able to reach him with the gospel. Certainly, a Christian can fall into any kind of sin, but when a person adopts a lifestyle that denies the faith, then you have to assume at that point that this person is lost. So Paul is very clear, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, again, very specific here, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then the next verse gives us some hope, but such, he says, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. So God can save anyone. So sometimes parents will say to me, our child, our daughter is lesbian, homosexual. You know, what, what do we do? You know, are they lost forever? No. As long as there's breath, there's hope, and God saves people out of all kinds of lifestyles. Now, there's a lot of factors that potentially can contribute to a homosexual lifestyle. Certainly, as Paul explains in Romans 1, when people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they're given over to sensuality. And if they continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they're given over to homosexuality. So that's one cause of this deviant behavior and it is deviant behavior and you know we we live in a day where people just want to be accepting of this as normal we saw just last week with senator booker from new jersey interviewing a potential secretary of state and uh, he asked him you know you said in one of your speeches and he quoted him that homosexuality is a perversion what say you you know and really was pushing this issue not that it was a critical issue for him serving well as the secretary of state he's functioned very well in our government and fairly and has treated people with equality but that does not mean that you uh, embrace this lifestyle as correct and sometimes you can make a point to a person If I were in that seat, I would have said, well, Senator Booker, you answer my question and I'll answer yours. 
Do you think bestiality is acceptable? Do you think um, adults having a relationship with little children are acceptable? And my guess is, is he would find that offensive, that lifestyle. Well, on what basis do you find it offensive? Well, why do you think that's wrong? And the fact is, is that there is a moral code that is given in Scripture that's written on our hearts. And if we reject that moral code, then we will embrace what's wrong. And it often starts with sensuality. It might have been that your son was first engaged in heterosexual sex and then uh, turned into the homosexual lifestyle. There's another common factor for homosexuality, and that is uh, your son was potentially molested as a child. And more often than not, when I deal with adults who have struggled with this sin and we probe a little bit, it comes out that they were molested as a child by an uncle, by a relative, by a music teacher, any number of different venues where this has happened. And very often when children are molested, they're threatened, uh, often with the lives of their very parents. And so they are just overwhelmed with the sense of shame. And if they don't find Christ as their Savior and genuine forgiveness uh, for the sins that they've committed, I'm not saying that they are at fault when they are victimized and sodomized by some adult, but if they don't find forgiveness in general something we all need, then they are unable to deal with the horror that has happened to them. And so very often to deal with it, they act on it to justify it as being okay. So that's a possible avenue that your son has walked down. Uh, Another possibility is that he felt, and again, I hope this is not true, but he felt utter rejection. And often when a uh, dad rejects his son, and is extremely harsh and unloving and unkind. A child wanting to have healthy family male affection from a dad will find it somewhere else. And it may have happened that way. I I don't know. I, I know you can't unscramble eggs in terms of what you've done, and you can beat yourself to death over what you've done. So what do you do now? So let me offer some help at this point. You want to try to maintain a relationship with your son. And certainly as a dad, you're correct to saying this is not going to happen in my home. Okay, I get it. Uh, You know, you wouldn't want your son to bring his boyfriend home and spend the night in your home any more than if he was a heterosexual and he brought his girlfriend home and wanted to spend the night in your home. That's not going to happen. But you have to view them as lost people, if this is a lifestyle that he's embraced, if he really knew the Lord, then God would bring him to the whipping shed and he'd be under the severe discipline of God because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. But if you don't see any remorse, any brokenness, any divine discipline, then just assume your son is lost. Don't tell me, well, he made a profession of faith and he got baptized. People make professions of faith all the time. And sometimes even leaders in the church, myself included, I have no doubt I've baptized some unbelievers. Now, I can only go by what they say. And I meet a lot of people who've been baptized by pastors. And and I think, why did you even go by what they said? Because they don't even understand the plan of salvation. Yet they were baptized and given a false sense of security. But if a person, you know, says, no, my faith is not in my human effort, but it's in the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. I've trusted him as my Lord and Savior. And he gets baptized as a 12 year old or whatever it might have been for your son. 
then you can only assume that that's true and time will show whether or not it's genuine. Uh, But lay that aside, your son has adopted a lifestyle that denies the faith. So you want to, what if, let me just give a what if. What if uh, this was not your son, but your neighbor? My son lives in Washington, D.C., my oldest son, Jeremy, and right across the street from his house are two homosexual men that live together. Uh, What have they done to try to reach those people? Well, they've invited them over to their home. They've had cookouts. um, They're trying to share the gospel. Would they let them sleep in their home and spend the night if uh, they lost power? Absolutely not. Of course not. Would never happen. But they still have a compassion for those two guys who are lost who can find Jesus. And that's the compassion you want to ask yourself. How are we going to express that? So your son needs to know that he's welcome. Um, again, you're, you're viewing him as an unbeliever. It, that's how you have to view him, because this is not like one single act of adultery or an act of homosexuality. This is a lifestyle that he has now adopted. And so you want to do what you can to express Christ's love so that hopefully you will find a window in his heart to share the plan of salvation with him. And very often, gays are the most unhappy people in the world. They really are. Um, They just go from partner to partner, and after a while, sometimes they run down that street long enough, and they realize how empty it is, and you don't want to miss that opportunity to be able to then show him the love of Christ. So that's where I would start with you, and um, my heart breaks for you. I know this is an incredibly difficult time. Uh, for you as a family, but don't despair. God is big. We're living in a day where this is now so widespread. Uh, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. That's the day we're living in. We're living in the last days when the Bible predicts that it would be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And so this lifestyle is just growing and broadening with every year that goes by. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Scott from Beaufort writes, if a believer files for a biblical divorce and then remarries another believer, is the new marriage seen as valid before God or is it a one-time event that he considers adultery or does he consider it continuous adultery? Well, I'm going to direct you to a message that I've preached from Matthew chapter 19. So if you go to searchthescriptures.org and you go under resources and you'll see messages and click on the gospel of Matthew and you will find a message in Matthew chapter 19 that I've preached on the subject of divorce. But what concerns me is if you're asking this for yourself um, and it sounds like it from the way the question is phrased, then there's a bigger problem in your life. If a believer files for a biblical divorce and then remarries, is that new marriage, you know, valid? And so if in your mind you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to file for divorce. Someone came to me just recently, not even a member of our church in the community. And they said, pastor, I'm kind of torn up on the inside and my wife's left me. And, you know, should I file for a divorce? I said, absolutely not. Um, God says in Malachi 2.16, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. God hates divorce. Why would you want to initiate something that God hates? I said, let it come from your wife. If she's going to file for the divorce, then let it come from her. But don't let it come from you as a believer. You do everything in your heart and mind to 
pray for reconciliation, which he was doing. He's a great brother and, and he didn't want a divorce and, and he wants to see his home restored. But uh, I think Scott from Buford, whoever you may be, go to search the scriptures.org because this is an hour long question. And I'm going to walk you through, if you will listen to that message, all of the passages on divorce and remarriage and what God says and what he doesn't say. And I think you will find an answer. But if in your heart you're thinking, I want to get a divorce and so, you know, I can justify it and God will forgive me. That's like a woman saying, well, you know, I don't really want this pregnancy and I guess I'll just get an abortion and and God can forgive me. It's true. He can forgive anything, anyone for anything. But you never presume on the grace of God and a heart that presumes on the grace of God is a heart that is really far away from God, either a unregenerate or grossly out of fellowship with the Lord. All right, let's go to the next question. Jeffrey from Savannah dictated this question. Would you please explain the timeline of the events of Saul's death as seen in 1 Samuel 3 and uh, 31 rather, and 2 Samuel 1? Uh, some of the perceived differences talked about are Saul asking for his armor bearer to kill him in 1 Samuel 31, and when refused, Saul falls on his sword himself. Apparently, the two were so close, the armor-bearer also took his own life after he sees that Saul is clearly dead. In 2 Samuel 1, Saul with a spear asks an Amalekite he does not know to kill him, and the Amalekite does so. Is it possible the Amalekite lied? David seems to not think of him highly and has put him to death uh, upon his report for confessing that he murdered God's anointed king. I know there are no inconsistencies in Scripture. However, I'm not sure how to line up these two events. It's a really good question, and it's one that the critics will sometimes use to say that the Bible is contradictory, that it has error in it. And people often love to say the Bible can't be trusted because there are mistakes in it. And every once in a while, I don't think we've had this question in maybe a decade, but uh, people from time to time, as they read through Scripture, they'll say, how do you put these two accounts together? So uh, let, let me uh, bring it let me go to first Samuel and um, just turn there briefly. And we'll look at the start of second Samuel in first Samuel chapter one. It says, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadad and Malchishua, the son of Saul, the sons of Saul, the battle went heavily against Saul And the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised, meaning the pagan Philistines, will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. They'll, They'll torture me, and they'll have a good time doing it, paraphrase. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took the sword, his sword, and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus, Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men on that day. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. And then the Philistines came and lived in them. Uh, It came about the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. 
They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the wall of Bethshean. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh Gilead. And then they fasted seven days. So there's the account given at the end of first Samuel, by the way, first and second Samuel, I should say is one book in the Hebrew Bible. It's not until the Septuagint that's written about 200 years before Christ, because most Jews had lost their ability to speak Hebrew, that some of the books were retitled with Greek names. And so Barashit in the Hebrew Bible is uh, our word Genesis, Uh, Genosios in Greek. That's the Greek title. And so the titles change. And then some of the books change in terms of how they are divided and so first and second Samuel is just called the book of Samuel in the Hebrew Bible. So they have the same, they have 23 books in the Hebrew Bible. We have 39. They have the exact same scriptures that we have, but the books are just connected in some places where we divide them into two parts. When you come to second Samuel, so to speak, as we term it since the Septuagint. Now it came about after the death of Saul when David returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziglag. And it says on the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David, that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, are, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? The young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. Behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and said to me, Uh, Here I am. And he said, who are you? I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said, please stand beside me and kill me for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown, which was on his head and the bracelet, which was on his arm. And I've brought them here to my Lord. And so obviously two very different accounts not contradictory for there are no contradictions in scripture, but God will often record in scripture certain events that happened, but God in a recording an event that happened is not necessarily affirming that event is true. And so the account we find again in our Bible, at the end of chapter 31, it's one book in the Hebrew Bible. So it's just one continuous read uh, there are several reasons why we know the account we read in First Samuel 31 is the correct account. First and foremost, uh, the, the initial report that comes, you know, is that Saul killed himself. Uh, that's, that's what Samuel records. And the verses that follow that account, you know, really bear that truth out. 
In fact, um, the Philistines were uh, responsible for his death because later on, again, it's one book, but let me see if I can find it here real fast. I think it's in uh, a little bit later here in Second Samuel 21. Uh, we, we read, um, when it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ella, the concubine had done, da, 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 da. And then, then it notes that the Philistines had um, struck down uh, Saul and Gilboa and uh, hanged him on the walls there at Beth Shean. So later on, the account is confirmed that the Philistines, one, had injured Saul. He's badly injured, which is what prompts his suicide. So the book is consistent with the account that we read here at the end of chapter 31. Uh, The Amalekite who comes to David, what is he doing? He's lying. He is basically saying, hey, look, you know, as an act of mercy, I did what Saul wanted me to do, and I drove him through with the sword. And, of course, this gets David very upset that you would touch the Lord's anointed. And David recognized that Saul had been uh, anointed by Samuel to be the first king of Israel. And so that man, because of it, lost his life. Now, he obviously lied because he thought he was going to get a reward for doing something that was merciful. But not in David's eyes. What he did was an evil thing. So just follow the order of events. Saul is wounded. And he's wounded so bad because he doesn't want the Philistines to um, make sport of him. He falls on his own sword. Was he right in doing that? Of course not. It's never right to do wrong. And so he, he kills himself. Was it right for, you know, the Jewish people, uh, 900 and some of them on top of that mount that Herod the Great had built, we call it Masada, to all commit suicide before the Romans came in? No, it was not. It's never right to do wrong. Um, And so then the Amalekite comes along, and he's not a Philistine. He's an Amalekite, and he finds the crown and the bracelet, and so he takes it. And he thinks, well, Saul's dead. He finds Saul's dead, and so I'm going to go bring it to King David, bring it to his camp, and hopefully I'll get a reward. Uh, It's an evil motive that he has. And then the next day, the Bible indicates here in chapter 31 that the Philistines found him. So the Amalekite found him first. The Philistines on the next day find Saul's body. They, of course, uh, cut his head off. They strip him of his armor and and they hang his body at a place called Bet-Shean. In a few weeks, we will visit, by God's grace, Bet-Shean as we take a whole group of people to Israel. And there at that place, they hung Saul's body in the son's body without their heads on the wall. Uh, When the men of Jabesh Gilead uh, discover what happens, they walk all night. They retrieve the bodies. And by the way, this is the only place in all the word of God where uh, believers, in essence, burn the body. But they don't burn the body like in cremation. But some have used this as a biblical basis for cremation. This is a rare exception. Understand what happened. Uh, By the time the men of Jabesh Gilead find his bodies, their heads are cut off. Their bodies have been mutilated. They've been nailed to a wall, so to speak. And their bodies are falling apart. And to transport them to a safe place where they could be buried would be a very difficult task. So they burn the flesh off and they take the bones 
And what do they do with the bones? They bury the bones. So even that is consistent with the biblical pattern of burial. There's no biblical basis for cremation. God's order is always for his people to bury the body. But the main point here is that there is no contradiction here between the two accounts. Chapter 31 is recording how he actually died. And 2 Samuel 1 is recording the lie that the Amalekite presented to King David. But the two accounts, um, you know, are helpful to read because you're seeing a real life human story lived out. I hope that makes sense. And it's a good question. Haven't been asked that in a long, long time, but I appreciate it. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and William from Fairfield, Maine wants to know, are there new apostles today as the new apostolic reformation people claim? Uh, Is prophecy conditional as they also claim? Well, uh, we broadcast out of Portland. I, I don't know if there is a new apostolic church there in Maine. Rick could probably Google it and figure it out in Fairfield, Maine. And let me just say the title New Apostolic Church is, doesn't mean that this is like some new thing in the history of the church. They go back to about the time that Mormonism started. And so, but like Mormonism in the 19th century, when the new apostolic church began, uh, they had a number of heresies mixed with truth. And that's often the way Satan works. He mixes wheat and tear together as Jesus taught in, in the gospel of Matthew. And so, um, these people have some doctrines that are orthodox, but like Mormons, it's also mixed with a number of heresies. Uh, The new apostolic church actually came out of a movement in England and eventually made its way here to the United States. And they basically say at the forefront of their theology is that these guys are the original descendants of the apostles. And so with that, they speak with apostolic authority. And so this is always an important issue to uh, digest in your theological thinking Namely, are there apostles today? And the answer is no, there are no apostles today. The Pope of Rome is not the living apostle such that when he speaks from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, that he speaks with absolute authority. There are no apostles today because to be an apostle, one, you had to have been personally selected by Christ. Two, you had to have seen him in his resurrection body. And three, if those two things were true, as Second Corinthians twelve twelve indicates, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. Some people who were false teachers who had come into the Corinthian church tried to discount Paul's apostleship. So in First Corinthians 9, he asked the question, have I not seen the risen Lord? Yes, I have. That's a requirement for an, to be an apostle. And they understood that. And in his second letter in the 12th chapter, he said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians who are dealing with these false teachers who are basically saying that Paul is a Johnny come lately, that he's not a real apostle. And Paul said, listen, remember when I was there, I performed among you with all perseverance of signs and wonders and miracles. I'm an apostle. In other words, if everyone can do these signs, wonders and miracles, 
then Paul's whole argument is dismissed. Now, I know there are people who run around the country on occasion who say they are doing what the apostles did, but they're not. They're not doing what the apostles did. That's not to say that God can't perform a miracle, but God doing the signs and wonders and miracles that he did through the apostles were unique to the apostolic age. Have you ever met someone who raised someone from the dead? I haven't. And uh, the only one who I ever even knew of who uh, claimed to have done that was supposedly Oral Roberts, who was a wacko nutto in his theology from A to Z. And he said he raised some baby from the dead, but no one could document it or sustain it. Uh, Not to mention his theology was so bad you couldn't trust anything that fella said. Um, In either case, these people, number one, are not apostles. They are not doing the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. Number two, uh, they were not personally hand-selected by Christ. And number three, they didn't see him in his resurrected body because people, um, these people, you know, their movement starts in the 1830s. And they somehow mysteriously are able to trace their lineage all the way back to the original apostles. And they say that we are therefore God's men. And so then they begin to speak so with so-called apostolic authority. And so some of the heresy they teach is that if you want to be saved, you must be baptized with water through one of the apostles who therefore can give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's no forgiveness of sin except through water baptism. And I couldn't. Uh, baptize you as a pastor. It has to be done by one of the apostles. So now they've got you by the throat. They're able to control you. And that's one of several steps in the whole process of their works righteousness by which you become a child of God. So it's just heresy through and through. That's all it is. Um, I don't know how many people they claim as members today. I know they used to claim around 10 million people worldwide, and I think they had a two, 300 congregations in the United States. They have some congregations I know up in the Northeast, and that's why I wondered if they had um, a fellowship there in Maine. No, Do they? No, not in, Maine. not in that, not in that area. So, uh, but you hear them from time to time, and in some places, and like any other cult, it's built on something that's extra biblical. And that's always generally true of any cult. There's a source outside of the 66 books of the Bible by which they base their doctrine. And so because they're living apostles, they can come up with stuff that goes beyond the 66 books of Holy Scripture and speaks supposedly with the same authority. That's typical of any cult. Or they take the Scripture like Satan does in Matthew 4, Luke 4, out of context. So you know right off that baptism doesn't wash away sin. It doesn't give you forgiveness, that it can only be done by apostles. I mean, that's not the pattern that you find in the New Testament. And so even if they were, quote unquote, direct descendants of the apostles, which no one could prove, uh, their doctrines are in direct contradiction to the word of God. Anyway, it's a good question. Appreciate that. And let's go to the next one. All right. Marty from Savannah writes, During the tribulation in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, when the saints in heaven say, How long, O Lord, before the evil is judged? Does that mean they can see what's happening on earth? It sounded like you said they could in the sermon on Revelation 10. But it's often said heaven would not be heaven if we could see what was going on. It would be more like hell. Got to listen carefully now, Marty. I didn't say that they could see. I said they knew. And there's a big difference. How did they know? 
Number one, they knew because they had just come out of the Great Tribulation. They were a part of this. These were men and women and children, no doubt, who had been beheaded because they refused to take the mark of the beast. And so they have walked down that road. God has allowed them to come to heaven, uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. They're in some kind of a temporary body awaiting the resurrection. In the Pyrrhus Tribulation, saints will be resurrected during the same time the Old Testament saints will be resurrection resurrected. There's a number of resurrections, all part of the first resurrection program in Scripture. But they've come out of the Great Tribulation they're saying, how long, O Lord? Why? Because they know the heartache, the horror, the persecution uh, that has come upon God's people because they choose to follow Jesus and not the Antichrist. So they are very much aware, one, from the perspective that they've just come through that experience. But number two, they are watching God's angels minister the bull trumpet and seal judgments. The recipients in heaven watch it. And so when you come to chapter eight, it says when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Why? Because in the seventh seal are seven trumpets. Unlike the seven seal judgments where one seal is rolled and broken at a time. There's not like a scroll with seven seals across the outside. The seals are um, on the inside. So the first seal is on the outside. You roll the scroll a little bit. Then the second seal is broken. You roll the scroll a little bit. And that's the picture that we have of the seal judgment. So you can only see one seal judgment at a time. Whereas with the trumpet judgments, remember the architecture of the book of Revelation, the judgments in chapters 6 through 18 comes in series of seven. There are seven seals followed by seven trumpets followed by seven bowls. And the seventh seal are contained the seven trumpets and in the seventh trumpet are contained the seven bowls. So when the seventh seal is open, you can now see all the judgments that are going to follow in the trumpets and the bowls that will come, which is what takes away the breath of people in heaven. Up until this time, heaven has been filled with praise and adoration to the lamb upon the throne and the father on the throne and the spirit of God around the throne. The triune God is being worshiped, but all of a sudden there's total silence in heaven. Imagine, you know, some big court case and the whole world, like with OJ Simpson, when he was uh, about to hear his verdict, there was just silence. I was in a restaurant and People had a TV on. You could hear a pin drop in the restaurant because it had captured the whole nation. How is he going to be found guilty or not guilty? And there was dead silence and people held their breath. That's the picture. When people see what is going to happen, it just brings total silence to heaven. So they are not, you know, looking down from... Um, you know, heaven's vestibule and watching every single event. But they know from a experience what took what has been taking place. And number two, they know from what they are seeing in heaven, what God is revealing to the inhabitants of heaven, what is going to happen. So how long, O oh Lord, how much longer 
their heart is uh, broken. Will you allow this to go on? Look, these people are not biblical scholars. If they were a lot more biblically astute than they would prior to the rapture, they would not have become tribulation saints. People who have been raptured are people who've heard the gospel in clarity and power, and they believe. After the rapture, there is a delusion that God sends upon the earth so that men may believe what is false. Why? Because they took pleasure in wickedness prior to the rapture of the church. So if someone is banking on becoming a born-again believer after this so-called rapture that they've heard about happens, they're deceived. The rapture is not a so-called event. It will happen. It is going to happen. When it happens, people who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture will not believe. But there's a great multitude that no one can even begin to begin to count, likened to the sand on the seashore. Go start counting sand granules next time you go to the beach and you got a picture of this vast multitude of people who come to know Christ during the tribulation period through the witness of the two witnesses and through the 144,000. So what I'm trying to say, these are not biblical scholars. These are people who are new to the Bible, who are new. They don't know that, you know, even, you know, that it's seven years long, the tribulation. So it's a legitimate question. They're asking how much longer, Lord, are you going to let this happen to the saints who are upon the earth? So I hope that helps. It's a good question, but listen more carefully. <laughs> uh, the devil is in the detail. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. You have uh, taught uh, about uh, John Calvin's views about Calvinism and his connection to the Presbyterian Church and Arminianism and its connection to the Methodist Church. Would you please expound on this and also define Arminianism? Well, you know, Calvinism is a big word that encompasses a broad range of theology. Many times people, when they ask if you are a Calvinist, what they're asking is, do you believe in the doctrine of divine election? Uh, Do you believe that God chooses some people to go to heaven and he either ignores or chooses other people to go to hell? There's single predestination and there's double predestination. Do you believe that Jesus died for everyone or just for the elect? So those are usually what's behind that question. But understand, uh, that's just one aspect. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, is one dimension of biblical doctrine that affects the church. There's also ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, eschatology, the doctrine of future things, and so on. So Calvinism starts with the premise that God has done with the Jewish people and that the church has become the new Israel. So it begins with that premise that the church has replaced Israel. And so because, and where, by the way, did Calvin got that? He got it from Roman Catholicism. Remember, he's, he's a, a Roman priest, and it's in that context that the Lord shows him the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But a lot of uh, Calvin's theology was Catholicism with a different spin on it. So he didn't believe, for instance, that the Roman Catholic Church was the new Israel, which they claim and still claim. They say God's done with the Jewish people, that they are now God's representative body upon the earth. 
Well, Calvin witnessed all the corruption in his day and thought that can't possibly be true. Uh, This must be false. And so he redefined it and said, well, the new Israel is not the Roman Catholic Church, but it's born again believers. And so there are many people in our day that espouse that particular viewpoint. Uh, They may not come right out and tell you, but if you listen carefully Uh, Their view of Israel is very, very minimized in their thinking. There is no significance in their theology for Israel becoming a nation, uh, for God using the Jewish people to bring about the second coming. There's no literal future tribulation period. In fact, they take typically chapters 4 through 18 as historical that it all happened before 70 A.D., There's no way you can spiritualize those verses away. Um, You really have to apply a different system on how to interpret the scriptures when you come to that kind of a conclusion during how God is going to deal with the Jewish people. So um, with that said, Calvinism embraces a wide range of theology. So John Calvin, for instance, believed that uh, he... Um, should baptize infants. He put a different spin on it than Roman Catholics did, but he took a sacramental approach that somehow it still gave a form of grace, as did Luther. Um, Were they right? No, they were wrong. And so sometimes Calvin and Luther get a lot of press, but I suppose in many ways some of the greater reformers were the Anabaptists because they brought the church even further back to the biblical roots of, of, of a biblical theology. Uh, so the Roman church got their view from Augustine and Augustine got it from Origen and on it went. But let me just read a quote here from John Calvin. This is what he said about the Jewish people. Okay, all you dear Calvinist friends, listen now. The Jews are rotten and unbending people with an obstinance that deserves that they be oppressed without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. You know, I wouldn't want to meet the Lord and have to give an account for that kind of a careless word. The Jewish people are God's nation by which he brought about the first coming of the Messiah and they are God's nation by which he will bring the second coming of the Messiah. Does that mean that everything that John Calvin taught was wrong? Of course not. But, you know, people quote Calvin said like he's the Pope. Um, Look, the guy had some serious error in his thinking. He was just wrong on a lot of issues. I'm not in a sense of pride saying that I would be better than him had I been maybe entrenched in Calvin, in Catholicism, but I, I was, you know, I mean, that was my background, but I started reading the Bible and I came to the conclusion that God loved the world, that Christ died for everyone and not because of one particular group of people tried to persuade me in that way, but it was a simple reading of scripture. When I was in India a couple of years ago in speaking to you know, dozens and dozens of pastors, some of them could not figure out where do people get this Calvinism stuff that Jesus didn't die for everyone. And that's even debatable, by the way, that John Calvin even held to that. His followers did, but I don't think Calvin did. He wasn't as Calvinistic as some of the Calvinistic people in our day are. 
Where, where do they get that? Where do they get this infant baptism thing? We, we just don't see that in the Bible. It just seems so simple and clear. Make disciples, make converts, baptize them. Seems like baptism always follows conversion. It does. And so that's why some of the Anabaptists, you know, refuted some of the teachings of John Calvin. But, you know, John Calvin, for instance, affirmed the eternal security of the believer over Jacobus Arminius, who said that, no, the believer is not secure just as you freely choose Christ. You can freely reject Christ and therefore lose your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. And, um, you know, to, to say that is just really to, again, uh, abuse the scripture. So I say all this to say that uh, everything that he taught um, was not wrong. John Calvin had a lot of good things to say. I, I've read his institutes, uh, Calvin's institutes. And uh, as I read through them, it was to me one of the best arguments for post-conversion baptism. If you, if you are an infant baptism person, just read Calvin's Institutes and you'll probably hold to what the majority of the church has always held for some 2,000 years, namely that believer's baptism or post-conversion baptism is the way to go. So, so Calvin, you know, he, he dies in 1564. He's born around 1500 where Jacobus Arminius, um, he, he's born, you know, three or four years before John Calvin dies. So he comes after Calvin and he introduces the doctrine that, you know, people can lose their salvation. Was he wrong? Of course he was wrong. Um, listen, there was a testing time for angels and some angels rebelled against God. We're going to be studying this soon in our exposition of the revelation. Uh, and they fell with Satan and now they are forever confirmed as demons, unholy angels. Another set of angels passed the test and they are forever confirmed as holy angels. Now they'll receive a judgment. The Bible says, in fact, the church will judge angels. And Paul uses that as an argument. If we're someday going to judge angels, can't we solve some of the problems that we have amongst ourselves rather than going to courts of law? Of course we can. Um, But with that said, angels are secure. And when you receive the Lord Jesus as your savior, you are eternally secure. He that believes has, present tense, eternal life. You can't lose something that's eternal. You say, I've lost my free will. No, when you freely chose Christ, you freely receive something that lasts forever, that can never, ever be lost. You know, and some people just have this view that security is found in a place that if I can just kind of grip my teeth and never renounce Christ and get into heaven someday, then I'll be secure. Look, security is not found in a place. The angels that rebelled fell from heaven. It's not found in a place. It's found in a person and it's found in his completed work. You say, but wait a minute. I know people that once followed Christ and renounced him. Question. One of the first questions that came in was a family, an evangelical family in Virginia asking about their son who's a homosexual. Now, all I have is what they have written to me. And I've tried to respond as best I can. But my guess is, is that this was a family that tried to raise their son for the cause of Christ. And some people would say, well, you see there he was saved. And now he totally rejects Christianity and the Bible. And he, you know, has adopted the 
homosexual lifestyle. No, he was never saved to begin with. Um, the Bible's clear that they went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have went out from us. John is saying one of the aspects of eternal security is the true child of God will persevere. In fact, Jesus even states this doctrine in the Olivet Discourse when he deals with tribulation saints. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Are you saved by persevering? No, but if you are saved, you will persevere. You will never, ever, ever renounce your salvation through Jesus Christ. It's impossible. Because he that began a good work in you will complete it. He is giving you the deposit, the earnest, the down payment, namely the Holy Spirit. It's by the spirit that we say Christ is Lord, Paul says. And that is an irreversible decision. So um, this caller, where are they calling from? What state? Uh, That was in Rinkin. Oh, in Rinkin. So they might want to go to the Back to Basics series, which is our discovery class, which is 45 weeks long, kind of a discipleship class. And about 30 of the 45 weeks are online. And so go to searchthescriptures.org. And if you're listening, you don't have the phone app, that might be helpful to you as well. Um, I really highly recommend parents take their children before they graduate from high school through the discovery class or the back to basics as it's taught there online, because it gives them a super great grounding. And I fear that most Christians in America don't have that. And so we go through the doctrine of eternal security and uh, we see how God uh, helps us to arrive at that truth and in passages that people use sometimes to say you can lose salvation. And I, I think you would find that extremely helpful. All right, let's go to the next question. Well, we've only got about a minute and a half left, so do you want to go ahead and give one more push for this week? Yeah, this is a great week here in April of 2018 at Community Bible Church. The World Missions Conference begins tomorrow night, Wednesday. Uh, A parade of over 160 missionaries to bagpipes will come into the service. Uh, That begins at 6.30. Even if you're coming from work and you can't arrive till 7, that's about the time. The African Children's Choir will start that will follow the parade of missionaries and some corporate worship. The African Children's um, Choir, you don't want to miss it. They are outstanding. Dr. Erwin Lutzer will be with us at the Friday evening meeting, Friday evening at 6.30. He'll also be preaching both services this coming Sunday at 9:15 and 11. Dr. Lutzer is one of the great men of God who's had a faithful, consistent ministry his life. And you don't want to miss him. And when a man of God comes to town, uh, what an opportunity to expose yourself and your children to such a person. Now, if you're in a good church, don't come. You go support your church. Uh, Don't you come to this. You need to be there to support your pastor, but you can live stream it later on and watch the message uh, when it's posted. Hey, another perfectly good hour has slipped away, but we're glad that you could join us for the Bible line and Lord willing, we'll be back again next Tuesday.